What is up, my friends? Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Coworking Weekly Show. As always, I'm your host, Alex Hillman. And if this is your first time joining us, it is so good to have you here. Uh, if it is your first time, this is a show where we answer questions about coworking, as well as interview guests who have valuable experiences in a wide range of industries, uh, from research and science of work and collaboration itself, to examples of community leadership and how you can be a better community leader. Uh, we're borrowing those examples from all over the world. And today we have a guest like that. I'm being joined by Rachel French, who is a K-12 educational planner, educational space planner, facility planner, although she and I spoke before the show and we both agree that the word facility kind of makes our skin crawl a little bit. Um, you might remember Rachel, though not specifically because she wasn't on the episode, uh, back from episode number 40, which was titled, There's No Such Thing as a Collaborative Space. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and check that one out. We'll link it in the show notes as well. Um, but in that episode, I explained how I met Rachel on an email list that I'm a part of called The List Serve, which you can go check out as well. And I was completely hooked when I read a line from her post that said, too often we throw an existing organization into a new space and expect that organization to instantly adapt. And from everything you've heard on this show, if you are not a new listener, although if you are a new listener, you will hear that from me over and over and over. This is a show about how people interact in places, how people interact with each other. We don't focus so much on architecture. And one of the things I love about Rachel is the fact that she, as she'll tell you, married sort of an architectural and design perspective with a uh, education in psychology and understanding how people think and work together. So there is a lot going on here, a lot of really, really great stuff. So I reached out to Rachel and we chatted a bit more and I asked her if she would join me on the show to talk about her work and see what of those lessons from the educational space design uh, we could potentially learn from that would cross over into the world of collaborative spaces that people like you and me are trying to build and grow and help thrive every day. Uh, let me tell you this, Rachel delivers big time on the promise of crossover knowledge, sharing some bits of her design process, what works, uh, who gets involved in that design process and how some of the consistent challenges faced by schools who are trying to redesign themselves to be more innovative. It sounds a lot like people who are trying to redesign workplaces to be more innovative. A lot of commonalities here. You might hear some familiar stories and remember, that's the point. You're not the only one solving the kind of problems that you're solving. Neither am I. We are solving similar problems with culture and collaboration in all kinds of disciplines around the world. And I think as people who are involved in co-working, trying to run co-working spaces uh, or collaborative spaces of any kind, frankly, we need to keep looking outside of our little world of co-working, our little bubble. We need to look outside of it for inspiration, for ideas and advice. And that, my friends, is what this show is all about every episode but especially today. Now, before we get into the show, two quick things to talk about. Uh, the first one, I mentioned this in a previous episode. Coming up soon, I'm going to be doing a live marathon Q&A. I have a huge backlog of questions from the Coworking Google group, things that people email me, things on Twitter. I want to get together online for a live event and answer as many of them as I can before I drop dead. Well, hopefully not dead, but like an actual live marathon of me answering questions. 
Now, this event is going to be free, but only for a limited number of seats. All online, all free, but only for a limited number of people. So the best way for you to be sure that you find out when it's happening and how to sign up is to be subscribed to this show. Whether that's on iTunes or Overcast, Stitcher, wherever you listen to the show, if you want to go to CoworkingWeekly.com to sign up for the newsletter or CoworkingWeekly.com slash show to launch the show link in iTunes, make sure you are subscribed because you're going to want to get the notification of how and where and when to sign up sign up for that live Q&A. Got it? All right. So if you have any questions about that, you can also shoot me an email, alex at indiehall.org or tweet at me at Alex Hillman. Now, while you're over there in iTunes, there is one other thing you can do to help out the show, which is leaving a five-star review and a couple of notes about something you've learned on the show. And I'm going to give you a little bonus. If you leave a review before the end of November, which is this month that we're in right now. Today's, as I'm recording, the 2nd of November. This will come out a week or so later. If you leave a review before the end of November, I will put your name into a hat to win a free copy of my audiobook, The First Ten. This is an audiobook that Adam and I recorded all last year. We released over the summer. It's an in-depth, super comprehensive, sort of an origin story of how I started Indie Hall, where we came from, how we got off the ground, and how we launched Indie Hall to a thriving community. It's got lessons and techniques that you can use to build and grow a community wherever you are from scratch. You don't have to know anybody in your city and do everything possible to avoid opening the doors to an empty co-working space. That'll be my gift to one lucky person who leaves a review during the month of November over on iTunes and make sure that I know your username. Uh, so if you do leave a review and you want to be entered into that, you can email me, tweet at me as well. Uh, I want to be able to find you so I can you know, send you that free copy. That's a lot of administrative stuff out of the way. I want to get into this episode with Rachel. It's awesome. I hope you enjoy. Ready? Here we go. Thank you so much for being here today, Rachel. Rachel French uh, is a K-12 educational planner, an educational, educational space planner, I should say. And uh, before we jump into sort of our conversation, Rachel, I thought it would be really useful to our listeners to have you describe sort of in your own words what it is that you do, because it might be a little bit confusing to folks uh, listening to the show about co-working, why I've got somebody who does educational space planning work, or, or maybe not. But why don't we go ahead there? How do you, who are you and, and what is it that you do? Sure. So what got me today actually started off just in college, um, just trying to give you a little background on what led to my interest, right? So I was an architecture major and didn't like how the focus was purely on just design and this kind of overarching principle and just these very broad concepts, right? And so I added on this psychology double degree and slowly but surely started seeing how there was so much each subject could learn from one another. So really understanding how these spaces were designing, you know, great architects and designers intuitively do know and have a really great taste for how the spaces they're creating are going to impact the users. But I think there's a whole other level of due diligence we can really ensure that especially in my field of educational environments, how to make sure the spaces we're designing really beneficially impact or support the desired activities of the users. And so I took those two degrees and kind of combined them into one with a graduate program. Um, so shout out to my good friends at the Department of Environmental Analysis at Cornell, um, which basically studies just that. So um, 
how humans and the environment, whether it's built or natural, really interact with one another. Um, it's a very kind of symbiotic relationship. So in my job, I really focus on how the architecture we're creating for schools can really impact teaching and learning and can also help move the education spectrum forward as there's lots of desires to really shake up the types of learning activities that are occurring in schools today. And architecture, and especially the interior design of a space and furniture, plays a huge role in allowing schools to get where they want to go educationally. So my role is to work with clients Super interesting. on making sure the architecture kind of speaks their language. And when you work, are you working directly with, with schools, with administration, with teachers, students, parents? Like when you're interacting, who are you actually interacting with who is your the person that you're serving or the group of people that you're all serving? of the above and it depends on the where we are in the design process so and a lot of that really is filtered through the school district they they choose who they put in front of us ideally i would love to be working with the principal of the school that we're working on and you know forward-thinking educators and students we i would really love to get in front of students more than we do um, to really get their take, because they often have more of a handle on what would excite them in the classroom versus educators who, you know, have been kind of asked to do one type of instruction for their whole careers. And so it's hard for them to think of teaching any differently and what that space could look like other than a box. Right, right. I want to come back to that that particular interaction with students in a minute. But before we do that, I, th- I think it would be maybe useful. I know it would be useful for me to have you sort of describe or define educational environments. Because in my brain, I think of I think of a classroom. And when I say the word classroom, I think a lot of people have a very specific image in their head. And I actually, uh, this is kind of timely, on Monday did uh, a guest lecture at a career day at a high school here in Philadelphia. And I was in a high school classroom. And it was it was in one way a a confirmed reminder that things are the way I remember them. But I was also looking at the room through a similar lens to what you're describing going, why is this all this way? So when, you know, are you thinking about classrooms? Are you thinking about other parts of a learning environment? Like how do you define, describe, what are the boundaries of a learning environment in your, within your discipline and your work? Well, the goal today is that there is no boundary. The goal is that every square foot of a school can be transformed into a space for learning. And so that's really breaking beyond the four walls. I mean, you still see new schools designed today that look exactly like the schools we all went to when we were young. So four walls, desks in rows, all facing one teaching surface. So that sets you up for the educators at the front of the room and the students are there to listen. And there's still a place for that, for direct instruction, Um, and having kind of this expertise and knowledge transfer. But there's a huge shift to students being more involved in the actual learning process and taking a bit more control. And a lot of that stems from that ability to access that knowledge anytime, you know, with the smartphone, the internet, you have unlimited opportunities to get the facts as you need them. But what is not easy and what students need to learn is what to do with that information and the you know critical thinking and problem solving and analyzing and working with one another. And so we're 
thinking of those activities that can allow for students to learn those skills, so how to problem solve or how to communicate. And so instead of having this sit and get type education, the activities are much, they look a lot different. So there's uh, tons of different pedagogical options that districts use today. Um, one that's really common is project-based learning. And so in that, you either individually or in small groups, it varies, are given kind of a broad problem or project that you have to solve. And the educator is there to facilitate this journey through this project. Um, and there's key points throughout that you might need to learn a physics concept or you might need to pop over to your math class or you need to pop over to English. So the idea is this then not only allows students to interact with one another, but interact cross-disciplinary. Um, and that traditional spaces, four walls, desks and rows, is not conducive to that. So what we see today in the more innovative facilities that I've worked on are you still have a few of those spaces for those moments, but you have a lot of more flexible, collaborative areas that are visible from the classroom that students can easily break out into. And this could look you know, the whole goal is really this variety of activity. And so you have to have a variety of space to support that. And so having acoustically separated kind of small breakout rooms, having soft seating and kind of a coffee shop environment, um, having work tables that are maybe up high and access to, you know, 3D printers or even laser cutters, uh, woodworking, where, you know, this kind of makerspace concept. Um, we're seeing integrated throughout the core curriculum and becoming very prevalent throughout the whole school. And so instead of walking down a hallway and seeing identical classrooms all in a row, you would walk into this vibrant, active space. And my favorite game to play when we walk into a school like this is kind of who's the teacher? Can you find the teacher? Because oftentimes they're integrated in one of these small groups doing this just-in-time instruction as students are kind of finding their way and learning and digesting content on their own or in groups. I'm really, really happy to hear you say that. And I I'm probably will use that example again in the future. Uh, when to translate any number of the things you just said to the the world that I'm working in with co-working with co-working spaces which they're for all the things they have different uh, as a community space you know, we have a, a friend of mine who's been on the show a bunch of times Vanessa Generelli uh, does an episode that uh, we do together called the stack and we always talk about how um, there's no such thing as a community that's not a learning community because I think the glue of many, if not most communities, if they're healthy, is the exchange of knowledge, information, the building of trusted bonds and things like that. And sharing knowledge is one of the best, if not one of the most important ways to do that. And what's always interesting is the what you just described in terms of the uh, how did you say it? the mm -hmm. who's yeah. the teacher right the teacher, yeah. that that if you yeah if you walk into a co-working space and you know exactly who the community manager is for instance there's a chance that that person is making themselves too visible the sort of framework that we use is sort of a cruise director mindset the person that's here to structure every moment to make things happen instead of to guide and i think you use the word facilitate people to finding the things that they may be able to do, they may be able to contribute, sort of facilitating a discovery process versus a uh, 
here we're going to do this now and then we're going to do this next and then you're going to do this next absolutely and And relationships are so huge and that's not even me as an outsider saying that for example um, the company i work with dlr group did this student innovation challenge um, a month or so ago with middle schoolers here in texas And we asked them to kind of create the problem that we were going to have them solve during this three-day event. And so they had to look at what is the biggest issue that students in the greater Houston area have to face today. And all of them pulled up aspects of this kind of more balance and mental well-being. And one common component of that was relationships with their teachers. They felt like even if they weren't engaged with the subject, they weren't able to have a voice in that. Or if they felt overwhelmed, they didn't have someone to talk to. And so really looking at how we can allow students to foster those relationships. And that goes way further than just the space design. But I think it all goes hand in hand and really looking at that becoming a goal for the school and what can you do to break down the scale of the facility as well as create those moments and those activities that will create that more level playing field between the students and their educators. So earlier you were describing a scenario, sort of a best case scenario, where students are actually involved in the design process of the place that they're going to use to learn, that they're going to learn in, and the people that they're going to learn with. Um, I don't know, do you, have a spe- do you have a project where students were involved that you can describe that design process, things that work, potential challenges and things like that? And if you, if you don't have a specific example, what, does a des- what would a design process like that look like in terms of figuring out how to get students involved? And you know, how do you keep this from turning into the inmates running the asylum kind of problem that I think people are afraid of when they th- think about turning over design to... Uh, to a constituency who may not have the full picture. Oh, it's so true. Um, It's just funny that you you brought up the inmate thing. When I was in uh, doing my undergraduate research thesis, my first taste at schools, I did do this with middle schoolers and kind of asked them about school design, and they went wild. Like, you would not want that (laughs) in your real design process. So that was a really good lesson to learn really early. Um, But I think, um, and I don't know if this directly answers that question, but I think what is really important is which students are in the room. Oftentimes when we have these design process with students, they are the cream of the crop. They are the students that are in that superintendent's advisory board. They are college ready. They are seating. But the issue there is they're succeeding in the current system. I was so excellent at memorizing facts and regurgitating them for tests. I rocked that. And so those students that are at that point aren't that helpful, to be honest, in the design process when we're trying to create a facility that is very different than that. And, you know, that that goes back to my saying that there still is a place for that direct instruction because there are some students that really do flourish, but I would say most students really do not. And so I want the student, you know, my, my coworker was... I don't even if she was on a bus a few weeks ago and overheard students talking about class and they're like, oh, did you, you know, did you take a nap today? They're like, yeah, I was in lecture. Like, that's what you do. So it was that that Hmm. feeling of their, you know, they're so not engaged. Those are the students that I want involved in my design process because I want to figure out, you know, how can I take this large percentage of the school that the whole goal of this reinvention is to address that and provide them a more enriching 
school experience. So I want to figure out what what would make them excited to be in this facility. And that you really have to take all students on a journey as well. And so we go through, no matter who's in the room, whether it's students or teachers or administrators, you have to kind of help them, you know, this whole concept of divergent thinking and then convergent thinking. So you have to really spread. And that's where, you know, uh, things like your co-working stories I've presented to groups to really explain, like, the work is changing. There's all these different things you have to consider. And we're preparing students for this whole different spectrum of possibilities. And so how does that impact the schools that we're creating. And so students don't necessarily realize that either. And so we have to show them, you know, this is the kind of, these are the, this is the way the world could be in 40 years. And we'll talk about technology. We'll talk about the environment. We'll talk about just how different spaces can look or the different learning activities that could occur in 30, 40 years. And then once that has kind of been established and everyone is kind of full of all these what if questions, we then can narrow in and converge on what that means today in creating a facility that will support the now, the reality, but then also be able to evolve into this, what may not be that fanciful of a future, it could be very real. Um, so I think it's the the journey component of the design process, whether it's with students or anybody is really important to make sure that you're not just repeating the same school that no one's really happy with. And it sounds like, you know, if I if I draw a line between the example you gave before with the middle schoolers who went kind of haywire with all of their suggestions, you know, I imagine it's a combination of, uh, you know, people uh, without any guidance can only imagine things that are either like what they see or extreme opposites. Um, but like like real considerate iterative changes are tough to – it's tough to imagine things that you've never seen before without a little bit of framing. Um, that journey that you're talking about, um, it sounds to me like what it really kind of serves to do is get a group of kids who are maybe not immediately on the same page – recognizing some common ground, some common goals. I think the way you said is, you know, getting people asking certain questions. Um, If you just put a group of people, frankly, of any age in a room, they aren't by default asking the same questions. And that journey sounds really useful to get people thinking about the same question, even if their answers to the question aren't the same, getting them asking the same, um, and I'll, I'll carefully use the word correct, question or questions up front I think makes for a more valuable conversation versus total, you know, blue sky can be anything brainstorming. Absolutely. There's a time and place for the blue sky brainstorming for sure. But you have to kind of get into what are all the other things that, I mean, the right questions are items about how does not just the facility look different, but what are all the other pieces that need to change? I think that's where the design process gets tricky is when it really is outside of the space. The space has to exist in this organizational environment with the culture and the expectations set. So we have to either change that or change the space, change together, they have to align. And so I think that that's what gets really tricky um, throughout that process. 
that was the sentence that um, I think had leapt out at me in the email that connected us. Um, and it was the, you know, I, I actually, I introduced you uh, and a question you had asked me from the email on the listserv. And there was a line in there uh, where you said something along the lines of, um, I've got to pull this out here. It says, too often we throw an existing organization into a new space and expect it to instantly adapt. That sounds like what you were just talking about. I'd love you to expand that, that thought, um, that problem, where you see that happening and like what what happens when you just take an organization and and chuck it into an entirely new even perfectly architected and designed environment what 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 happens versus what needs to happen all right so one one common example you know i described earlier what what i think schools should look like or could look like today i shouldn't say should because it's different for every client and every population but you know with these flexible spaces and breakout areas there's a lot of um, expectations that need to shift so those are properly usable. So typically schools operate on a you know period, seven period day to where students are, you know, high school students, for example, are in class for maybe 45 minutes, have a five minute transition period, and then they're in another class for 45 minutes. Well, um, in that example, you're, you know, going from one traditional classroom to another traditional classroom. That schedule can work with this different environment, but then you have to have the trust of your students to send them outside, which one way of gaining that trust could be being able to see them and having, you know, the, you know, there's architectural things you can do to help with that autonomy, but really allowing for students to actually use those spaces. Um, you have to have planning time for your educators to learn to use those spaces. So if they're not used to having students break off into groups or doing any sort of project-based learning or inquiry-based learning, they will have no reason to use those spaces. They will stay inside their four walls and this environment that you have created is just wasted square footage. Um, One of the things that always breaks my heart and I see far too often when we go on school tours is breakout rooms that are used for storage, or we'll see windows into these flex spaces covered up with posters or furniture to where all of the magic that there that was there and the potential that was there is completely missed. That is and heartbroken. That's heartbreaking. So sad. Um, and I think it, a lot of it is just training teachers to or giving them opportunities to use them and freeing them up from what they are typically, and I'm having a really hard time answering this question because one of the goals of my next two years is really learning what it's like to be a teacher in these spaces because that's a place I haven't lived in. So it's hard for me to put it in their shoes, but I have seen where it's successful. It's having this strong leader that really embraces educators getting to have just a ton of autonomy in how they teach their classes. And there's all sorts of systematic reasons that education is the way it is today. You know, there's a lot of stress on teachers to teach to the test, as commonly as said, and just really following very strict strict TEKS, um, which is kind of the Texas um, mandated curricular items that students need to learn in each subject. Um, so with all of these kind of really policy level things, it's really difficult for educators to do more than what they've already known, what they're graded on, and what's expected of them. So what needs to shift is this kind of cultural, you either need a leader that says, hey, you you can do this, you can have fun, you can push out, use these spaces, and 
you know, we've had districts that have done that and they've still rocked on all of their standardized testing. So it's possible. Um, I feel like I'm just going in circles um, because that's kind of the next step in my journey is really figuring out how the, the teacher role in this whole situation. But in my master's thesis, I worked with some elementary schools up in New Hampshire, and they had these beautiful new elementary schools with project spaces and kind of all of the nuances that I've mentioned. And in my interviews with educators, one of them, you know, I think the direct quote was, we were never taught to collaborate. They just expected us to know how, and we don't. Right. Um, so really, it's it could be training could could help. I think leadership is so important. And just having this attitude that this is better, this can be better for some students and we need to explore this and think through all the opportunities there. Well, I think one of the, I mean, you said it multiple times and, and I agree, autonomy being such a key element of these kinds of cultures. Um, and people don't work together because you make them work together. People work together because they choose to work together. Um, and, and I think that's a, that's a defining function of what makes collaboration successful is people feeling and truly being able to, to be in some element of, of control, even if it's not complete control to be, have some decision-making capacity. Um, but part of that can be as simple as giving people the permission. Um, and what I'm hearing you say here is that, you know, the, the strong leader, the strong administrator is the one who says to their staff, like, hey, I know that you've got a lot on your plate, but I, I'm granting you permission, you know, and, and maybe in some cases it's time boxed permission or in a certain grouping or category, you don't have to, I mean, I, I can't, I, I don't, can't think of a situation in the workplace design that I've studied where everything gets overhauled in a single, you know, brush stroke and everything is suddenly better. It's more small incremental change. It's, it's permission to help people, not even help people, permission to let people find a way to do the job they're already doing a little bit better and introduce them to some some new tools. Um, the other corollary that struck me in terms of people not just not knowing um, how or where to where to collaborate um, is how often workplaces, co-working spaces and, and otherwise in, you know, implement an open floor plan or some variation of, you know, um, activity based work like you were describing before. But they don't teach the leaders how to lead their teams in using it and or the teams themselves how to use it. So you end up in this situation where what could be a great environment because you're giving people the ability to choose where they work, you never teach them how to choose where they work. And so people either choose the default, which is staying in the exact same place they were before, which is sort of defeats the purpose. Um, or another alternative where I talk to, you know, people who manage a team, not even a big team, a team of a handful of people. And their new freak out is, I don't know where my team is because nobody taught the team how to report and say, Hey, I'm going to be over here for a little while. Here's what I'm going to be working on. If that needs to change or, or if I, you need me back here, just give me a shout. Here's how to inter, you know, here's how interruptible I am and here's how to get a hold of me. Um, and nobody, so nobody taught the employees, the coworkers how to do that. Um, and nobody told the management that they would have to do that. So it's sort of massive breakdown of communication, um, that, that the, it sounds like incredibly, it sounds too simple to teach people how to tell their you know, boss or their coworkers, hey, here's where I'm going to work for the day. But that little grant of permission added with like a just a reminder of, hey, just call the ball, say where you're going, uh, changes the dynamic of the entire team. 
and allows people to feel like, oh, I can choose where I go and I can change it up based on, you know, what works for me or, or what I need right now. Uh, you know, grant people the permission to experiment a little bit because you, you know that it's going to be better for them and the rest of the team. So um, it sounds like a lot of things that, you know, it's exciting to me to know that there's the potential for a generation of students who are going to be able to grow up doing this because when I look at the adults who are who struggle most with this, it's adults who are, you know, you know, top of their game professionals. They've in many cases been well-educated. They're making good money, but they've only ever been in an environment where somebody told them where to be next and what to do next. And so when that structure is taken away, but they're not taught how to create a structure for themselves, everything falls apart. So I'm excited for the notion of, of people growing up, learning these new skills so that we're not having to sort of backfill these otherwise talented professional people with a set of skills that they were just never given in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am so optimistic. I, I mean, and I'm just a forever optimist, I suppose, but you're exactly right. Cause I've even talked with students who have, there's, you know, the new tech network is a na- nationwide group of schools that, you know, a public school can kind of be a new tech school. You buy into this network and it's all project-based learning. So there are many students that have gone through that whole program now and they're just the most articulate. Like I would meet a student that is just out of school and I swear they were in their mid-20s, just their skill level and their ability to communicate and the ease they have just in and of themselves. And they have the opportunity to also explore just who they are, like in a very real way. So it's very, I mean, I'm, I'm very excited to see where education, where the education system will go and the great benefit it's going to have on our country. When, when you're, so you have work projects where you get to go and observe and research and design. I love that you're, um, you're even hesitant to answer a question without putting yourself in the shoes of the of the educator. Um, that's something that I think a lot of folks that run co-working spaces answer questions about how co-workers interact without taking the time to put themselves in the shoes of, of the co-worker and understand what it's really like to be the freelancer who, you know, can work from anywhere but doesn't have a place they have to work. So what are the reasons people are choosing to be in these environments? Like that true sort of ethnographic observation, putting like not just observing but be, being there um what other what other resources do you track um like where do you look for inspiration do you have any any favorite you know um uh, educators leaders in the educational world books blogs uh research papers uh for folks who who are interested in the things we're talking about and you know you and i seem like uh, we have some kindred spirit and that we look to cross-disciplinary things for examples to help other people understand what we do um it, i'm genuinely interested in digging in more into some of your favorite resources and for other people that are listening along i'm wondering if there's you know one or two places you point people to as um doing exceptional leadership in in examples case studies research and things like that you know not a ton are doing um so when i think of i pull a lot of research from other firms that do a lot of great marketing style case studies. Um, but there's not a ton We're you know, now leading a lot more towards, you know, real, um, primary research opportunities. So that's kind of this next frontier that I see and I get really excited about. Um, but I read a lot of things that aren't about education necessarily. And so, 
there's a lot of workplace reports and studies, and I wish I could off the top of my head rattle off the best ones, but I'm happy to send them to you if you post them. I don't know if you have a website along with these. Um, I know. Yeah, we'll, we'll collect them and put them in the show notes. Absolutely. Perfect. So I'm happy to send all of those to you. I mean, I do subscribe to a couple blog posts. There's one woman who I'm actually going to be working with um, who I've not yet met. She has no idea who I am, but Ann Knock out of Australia is a real forward thinking educator. And she just turns out she's getting a PhD in the same program that I'll be hopping on to work with for a year while I'm there. And she just has a great blog. She is a huge thought leader for many, many decades in Australia in terms of not just space design, but the use of space and its relationship to education. So she's definitely someone that I look forward to, you know, meeting and working with, but is one of the more forward thinking people I like to follow. Cool. And this, this project that you're doing in Australia, um, you said you're going for your, this is uh, a research-based project or a work project or tell me more about that. So it's my ability to combine all the things I love, um, schools, research and travel into one. So I am going to be living in Melbourne, Australia and working with this pre-existing research study called Innovative Learning Environments and Teacher Change. So hopping back to my mention of kind of really focusing on the teacher level is what will be, that is what the next year will be. And what they're looking at is how to adjust or how to help teachers and organizations shift into innovative learning environments. So kind of the whole thing I've been preaching in our discussion um, so I'll be working through the university, but it's this huge linkage study that encompasses many different partners all across the country. Um, so it's a really big deal in Australia. And so my goal is to take all the knowledge that they are accumulating and learning and apply that here in the United States, because there's so many parallels of the issues they're having adjusting to these new new learning environments, as I see with my clients and just other schools throughout the country here. So that's where the, you know, it'll first be some research and that'll even be ongoing once I return, but plugging it into my day-to-day work. So it's a constant kind of communication between what I'm learning and then feeding that back to my coworkers here to where we're instantly going to start improving our processes to make sure that on day one, when teachers and principals move into these schools, they get it and they're ready to go. Super cool. That's very exciting. Very, very exciting. Well, would they be somewhere uh, in any way to, to follow along with that publicly? Are you publishing any of the stuff um, on your own as well? Yes, I'll give you the links to the official website of the research to add, but I do, um, I've started a blog to discuss my time there and I've kind of already added in kind of insights ongoing at the moment, but it's schoolsandtravel.com. So you can check cool. that out and follow along. Very cool. You know, it's interesting that you bring up this sort of international component. And one of the things that I, I notice a lot with co-working, be, having grown to be an international phenomenon, um, and education naturally, I say naturally, maybe maybe that's not fair, is also, in, you know, it happens in all cultures, you know, running the full spectrum of formal to informal. What's interesting to me about co-working internationally is how people in certain places perceive whether they are behind or ahead of contemporary trends. Um, and I think people often sort of over-index and they think they are way further ahead than they really are or they think they're way further behind than they really are. Um, and I'm curious, you know, it, it, 
if you have any perspective yet or if there's things that you're sort of brushing up against, are there places in the world that this seems to be um, more advanced than here in the States um, that may include Australia or otherwise? How is this kind of – how is this pattern playing out on a – on a multicultural scale or the places where it's thriving um, or, or growing faster than, than others? You know, that's a hard question. I know that I, I would have to say that Australia in terms of the initiative to put the facilities in the ground, they are far ahead. But is that government? Is that government driven or it was or actually there was this big um, declaration, I think, back in 2009. Um, it was building the education revolution. And they really put a lot of money into creating all of these new facilities um, to really spur and allow for different learning activities to occur, which is why this study that I'm working with is such a big deal there is because there are so many facilities that are going to be impacted and there. And I think one of the similarities between the U.S. and Australia is that there are pockets of super success with these facilities where everything has aligned. And so I don't necessarily know if there's one country that's farther ahead. And I, I'm not as familiar with the specific kind of learning environment I'm kind of thinking of right now throughout the world, because I've been very focused on my upcoming time in Australia, but there are throughout the country pockets of success and then pockets of trying really hard and just not getting it. So the goal, I mean, my goal for, you know, my time there as well as back in the U.S. is to connect those together and learn from those that are having a lot of success. You know, what, what, changes did they have to make to their schedule or to their hiring practices or to the student-teacher ratios or types of spaces. So kind of benchmarking the process along with the facilities Mm -hmm. to then help those and also looking at those that maybe didn't succeed. What were the missing pieces? What did they try that didn't work? Because you'll go in any state throughout the country and see schools like this that you would just walk in and you Like I've had that feeling a few times where I've walked into school and I'm just like, I need to move here and send my future children to this facility because it's magic. (laughs) Like you just feel so excited to be in that facility. And so there are those throughout the whole country and I'm sure the same is throughout the whole world. But I don't know if there's necessarily one country as a whole that has the whole systematic backing to really create this widespread support and change. I don't know if I see that happening. Yeah. And it's interesting that you found it in Australia. I, I, when I was, I did a couple of project trips there and was impressed, not just with the sort of cultural understanding of co-working on a broad scale, but also when I interacted with folks in the government and sort of the government's approach to innovation, um, was that there's a a very fine line to walk between um, being supportive and being too hands-on where you're kind of stifling it. Um, And I'm speaking of the government in particular. And I was struck how good so many government officials that I spoke with understood that in, in innovation ecosystems, their role was always going to be a supporting one, not a leading one. And I, and I feel like that's less often the case 
uh, at least here in the States and even in a lot of cases in, in Europe, the, the government gets involved and they want to lead everything. They want to own everything. And I saw the sort of the, the more successful pattern showing up with a remarkable amount of consistency. And you're right. It's not everywhere, but it was a striking um, a striking consistency from the government leaders that I, I met with when I was in uh, Melbourne, Sydney, and even up on, on the Gold Coast. Um, so it wasn't just major cities, so to speak. It was more you know, suburban, sprawly kinds of areas outside of Brisbane. The government sees it and they go, we want to help, but it's not ours to do. We'll help you do it. Uh, and I would love to see more things like that. It sounds like that could translate really well to all of the elements that we talked about in terms of giving the people who know best the autonomy and the resources mm-hmm. to do what they do best. And we're seeing a great thing. And that that's so true. And I know in Texas and there's other states that have done this, they are creating this districts of innovation um, category that school districts can apply to. And it basically then allows them to apply for waivers on these typically mandated things that the government would require of them in terms of, you know, I, I don't know what all you can get a waiver for, but I know it's allowing districts to really do things a lot differently than they may have felt they had to do before. So I think that is a good example of being supported without being mandated. What an interesting Interesting use of an incentive, like a we'll get out of your way a little bit more if you contribute to this other thing. I, I, I love that. Really, really interesting. As we as we wrap up, I, I like to, to occasionally ask a question of uh, guests on the show to understand a little bit more about your working style. We've talked a lot about the work that you do. But my question for you, sort of my last question is, what does your best day of work look like when you end a day and you're like, that was an awesome day of getting things done. What things happened during that day? Where were you? What were you doing? Who were you interacting with? Like, what is a, what is your best day at work look and feel like? Well, this isn't necessarily answering your question, but I don't know if I mentioned you before. I actually work in a co-working space. So you didn't, <laughs> that's exciting. Um, so that I, I love just being in a co-working environment because my company DLR group is, has been around for over 50 years throughout the country, but we're just pretty new in Texas. And so I'm one of only two people physically in Austin. And so I'm, I'm at a co-working spot, which is wonderful. Um, but aside from that, like my, my perfect day, I love it when I'm in a meeting with a school and my favorite moments have been, there was a small district I worked with And so it was a very rural town. This was a really big deal for them that they were getting to reevaluate their facilities. And so I led um, through with the school board and we pulled students in and we had um, educators in the room. So it was a very good mix of users. And we did a visioning exercise to really dream about what teaching and learning could look like in their town and in their schools. And it was just really exciting getting to dream with them. But then also when they when they get it and then when, you know, they have these concepts in their minds and they think, oh, we could we could never have all these pictures you're showing. But then you, you know, pull out their floor plans and you start talking about how all of these concepts could be applied in a very real way within their existing building, even so through renovations or minor tweaks they are able to kind of really change the way their schools look and feel and function. I think those are the best days where I just feel like I can actually see it in the faces and in in their in their excitement of the users to where I'm like I you know I just feel like I have actually impacted someone's life and the schools and the children that are going to go through these facilities for the next more than a decade are going to have a better experience because I was involved. That's awesome. 
So, so cool. Rachel, this has been a pleasure. Um, I'm excited to keep up with your work while you're in Melbourne. Uh, we'll collect all the links that you mentioned as well as some of the others you're going to dig up and, and share them in the show notes again. Um, I look forward to you and I being able to stay in touch, learn more about your research. Um, you know, my my interest in education personally um, sort of runs the gamut because, you know, when you were describing earlier, you know, the system works for the kids that it works for and then there's the ones that it doesn't. Candidly, I was one of those ones it didn't work for. So I'm, you know, I'm excited about the future. I, I love, love, love your optimism for what's possible. And I look forward to living in a future that's that's impacted by it. So thank you for everything you do. And thanks for taking the time to share today. Sure thing. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Well, have a great rest of your day and uh, we'll talk again soon. All right, gang, thanks for listening to that episode. I hope you're feeling inspired and confident and ready to just take on the day. And I was wondering if you would be willing to share this episode. I uh, share it on Twitter, Facebook, email it to a friend or a coworker, uh, maybe a boss or a mentor, a neighbor, a friend, anyone that you think would benefit from hearing the reminders that we shared in this episode. Uh, we have a bunch of awesome stuff in store for the show coming up, stuff that's more interactive, new kinds of guests, and a whole lot more. So I'd love your help inviting more people to get involved in the Coworking Weekly show. So you know, pick one person, just one, uh, and send them this episode. And if it's not this episode that has you super in inspired. Maybe there's another episode that you'd rather share instead. Either way, I'm so thankful for you taking the time out of your day to listen to the show. I love hearing from you. I love reading your reviews on iTunes. And it would mean the world to me if you got just one new person listening to the Coworking Weekly show. So help us get the message out there. And I look forward to hearing from you and meeting all of your friends as well. Have a great week and I'll see you next time on the Coworking Weekly show.